Good morning, church. <coughs> it's good to be with you. Um, good to see your guys' faces and to the guys online. Um, really a warm welcome. And uh, glad for what God is going to do this morning in the midst of us. I hope you're ready to receive. The title of my preach this morning is Not That. It's, it's actually, now I've changed it already. It's Don't Fear That, Fear the Lord. Don't Fear That, Fear the Lord. And we, we continue in our series from in the book of Acts. We've just done Acts 4.31, and the stuff that preceded that was the Holy Spirit was poured out, and it says they left the room and preached with boldness as they went out. So that's our context. Most commentators suggest that from Acts 4.31, it jumps across um, the chronology of it to Acts 5.12, where it then goes on and speaks about them doing all sorts of miracles and wonders at the hands of the apostles and so on and so forth like that. And this little section from... Chapter 4, verse 32 to 5, 11 is like a piece that Luke puts in to give us insight into some important dynamics that were taking place in the life of the church. And we are the church, and so these dynamics would be important for us to understand what it means to be the church and how the church interacts with God and therefore how it affects their witness to those around them. Okay, does that make sense? Let's read this passage quickly and then we'll dive into it a little bit. From verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and their great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph... Put your name in there. This Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've lied not to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door that will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When young men, the young men came and they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is quite a, um, a strange story, actually, in this passage of Scripture when you think about it. We're, we're in such a flow of God doing this miraculous work. Um, there, this persecution that's come against the church, but they've cried out to God again. And God has poured His Spirit upon the church afresh which we, um, a few weeks ago we, we spoke about was a, a second, a continual outpouring of the Spirit of God, which we 
continue to long for and ask God for again and again. Lord, won't you fill us? Bless you, my sister, with your sneezes. <laughs> and, um, but then, um, and then the story comes, and there's this, this thing happens. Two people die. But it's actually, there's a, there's a connection as to what's going on here. When Joseph takes that piece of land and he sells it, and he puts the money at the apostles' feet, what you can say about him is that he, is, he, is, he fears the Lord. It's, it's not a little thing to sell your property and give that money away to the church, or wh- however the context is here. It's obviously to the church, but I don't mean like, you know, I don't want, I don't want you to leave your inheritance to the church or the institutional thing like that. I mean in obedience to God, you faithfully give what He's called you to give. It's not a small thing, though. It's, it's, a, it's a mass of what Joseph did. Some people have suggested, and there's no evidence in Scripture that this is the case, but it does paint a picture that Joseph or Barnabas may have been the rich young ruler that came to Jesus in the Gospels. And so if you go back to that story, what happens is this young man, this rich young man, comes to Jesus and says to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus lists the things that the, 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 the leaders would have said in those days, honor your mother and father, don't commit adultery, don't steal, all those things. And he says, I've done all of those things since I was a young man. And then Jesus says... <laughs> the way that Jesus does. Okay, there's one more thing. Just sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And it says the man went away sad because he, um, he, was, he was very wealthy. And um, imagine if that is the story. And Joseph now comes, these years later, comes to the place where he, he has come in full surrender. He understands or has come to understand who Jesus was and is and always will be. And so he joyfully sells the land and, and puts it before the apostles. And what we see here is a man who walks in the fear of the Lord. And then we contrast that with Ananias and Sapphira. And maybe there were many kind of illustrations that the Holy Spirit could have used to, to bring this, um, this comparison, but he uses this one. So Ananias and Sapphira also have land that they sell. And I don't know why they do this. Why? Maybe they saw what happened when Barnabas bought his land and everyone was like, Barnabas, you're the guy. Oh, give us a B, give us an A, like whatever. And so they were like hoping there would be a, whatever, you know. Maybe it was pride, maybe it was envy, maybe it was, but they sell the land and instead of bringing the proceeds, what they, what they said was, apparently from the scripture, the, we've sold a piece of land and this is the money that we got for it. We want to give it all to the church. And um, Peter's so clear on this thing. He's not, he doesn't care about the money. He said the land was yours before you sold it. And when you sold it, the money was yours. We're not joining some sort of communist commune here where everyone has to sell everything and, and, and put it before the Lord. This, you're free. You have, you have the freedom to make the decisions you want to make. But you lied to the Holy Spirit. And so they, they, they connive the story and they tell it. And then, um, and then Peter confronts them on it. And it's striking that he says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And we've been preaching about the Holy Spirit through the series. It's, it's, I think it's a central theme, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, Dylan had messaged me. We'd been kind of debating as to what is the central thread of the series. And Dylan sent me a message. It's the Holy Spirit. And he's exactly right. It is the Holy Spirit throughout this thing. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You see, when we... Um, when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And we've spoken about the baptism, which is something subsequent, but the Holy Spirit dwells inside of each one of us. It's not a, a once-off encounter, you know, like, for example, if you were to go to the mall, mall of the Emirates, and then, I don't know, maybe 
the most famous person you could ever think of, somebody you've always wanted to meet, is walking through the Mall of the Emirates. It actually happened to me. Can you believe it? Um, you can come ask me after who the most famous person I would ever want to meet is. And this person was in the mall. And imagine you, like, you turn around, and there they are standing right there, and you get to have this conversation with this person, and they tell you something that you didn't know, and you, and you leave from there, and you think, like, I'm changed. Like, this is amazing. I've met this person. I, I'll never, I'm never washing this hand because I shook, shook the hand or whatever. Or the, I'm putting a plastic bag over, and I'm just going to walk around like forever like this. But it was an encounter, and then you separated from that person. But when the Holy Spirit comes, and He comes into our lives to live inside of us, He's forever inside of us. And so it's this continual progression of us. He affects us and changes, changes and moves us as we move on. And so what, um, what the, the Luke's saying in here is that there's this contrast. As the Holy Spirit has come into Ananias and Sapphira, He's come to dwell inside of them, and they've lied to this person that they're in relationship with. So unlike meeting the person in the well, in, in the well, I don't know if you meet it, unlike meeting the person in the mall, <laughs> this is like meeting your husband or your wife and getting married to them. It's a relationship that starts us, that brings us together in commitment and intimacy and just grows deeper and deeper the longer we progress. And so it becomes, it's one thing if I say something to somebody at the mall and say, this, I'm this or I'm that, and it's not true. It's another thing entirely if I were to be in a, in a relationship of um, dishonesty and disrespect with my wife and her with me. And so, the whole, so there's, there's something intimate. There's something profoundly personal when um, uh, Peter says you've lied to the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit is a person. We're in a relationship with Him. One of the things that has helped me a lot lately is to really think, as we've been going through this series, about the Holy Spirit as a person. Now, obviously, I know He's a person. I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher. I teach stuff all the time. But we go, we can get into the place because of the imagery the Bible uses about the Holy Spirit. He's a fire. He's a river. He's, he's oil. He's those things. And we can start to think of the Holy Spirit as if He were something and not someone. We start to think of His, his, uh, his working as like the, the force in Star Wars, you know, like um, go in peace and may the force be with you. It's kind of that idea that he's around like this in, this in this force, but he's a person. And it's easy to relate to God the Father as a father, and happy Father's Day to all the fathers, by the way, and happy Father's Day to you, Heavenly Father. Um, it's easy to relate to him that way. Um, I, I think about my own father, who is actually with my Heavenly Father right now, and I, and I, I have a relate had a relationship with him, still have a relationship as, as of some sorts with my earthly father, which informs my relationship with my heavenly father. It's easy for me to interact like that. It's easy for me to interact with the son. I have a relationship. Um, I am a son, and I feel that relationship with the father. I, I understand who he is, who Jesus is, and, and I, I do the working of that relationship. But the Holy Spirit is, is different, isn't he? The way that he interacts with us feels different. And so we can start to slip into the language of it, um, did, you know, what, what did it feel like when it came upon you? What is it doing? And, but he's a person. You can lie to a person. You can't lie to an it. And so it reminds us that he is a person and that he is God and he's at work in us. And so this contrast stands where you've got Joseph or Barnabas who fears the Lord and, and has acted with absolute integrity towards God. He didn't have to sell the land, but he chose to, probably hopefully out of obedience to God maybe out of obedience to what Christ had told them. And you've got Ananias and Sapphira that have not acted out of a fear of God. And then the Holy Spirit strikes them down, and I'll come into 
the, the reality of God's judgment. Um, and then a fear of God comes upon the whole church. And out of that fear, this just flows into a, it's like a second revival that begins to sweep through the church. And the, the fear of God is, uh, um, and the, the Bible says, the beginning of wisdom. It's, it's always spoken of in a positive way in Scripture, ne ne never in a negative way. And so I just want to read two Scriptures that distinguish um, the fear of God that is right and good and fear that we are told not to have. And so again and again, the, the Bible tells us not to fear. And then on the other hand, it says fear God. And so it can be a little bit confusing because we think all fears are the same, but they're not the same. Isaiah 8 and verse 12 and, uh, through to 14, the amazing verses. It says, do not call conspiracy everything that, that these people call conspiracy. Feels like a good scripture for today, hey? <laughs> do not fear what they fear. Like, I quite like an odd conspiracy theory. I don't know about you guys. I, I going onto YouTube and listening to this person and that person talking about this and that. There's a difference between listening to those stories and fearing the things that they fear. Like, like I don't fear that the world is coming to an end because I believe God is in control of everything, not, not um, the petrol price or fossil fuels or whatever it is. Now, I agree we've got to steward our world well. I understand that, but I'm not in fear of the world suddenly imploding in and of itself. I'm not fearful about economic collapse as if that were my provider because God is my provider. So there are things around us that are going on all the time, and we're living in a pretty chaotic world right now. Um, currencies um, all over the place. You've got um, markets are down. We've got war taking place in different nations. There's shortages. Um, supply chains are broken. All sorts of things. I, I think there's a, a lot of potential for fear out there. And Isaiah says, don't fear what they fear. Do not dread it. And he goes on to verse 13. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy, and He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread, and He will be a sanctuary. And then, I'll come back to that in a second. Exodus 20, 20 says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And so, what we see here is that there are things around us that we potentially can fear that we shouldn't fear. And then there is something that we should fear that too often we don't end up fearing. And that fear of God is what actually keeps us safe. And so I'm going to tell that story now through Ananias and Sapphira. We come to this couple, this strange situation where they actually fall down dead in the church like this. And they end up having to be buried. And we don't know too much about them. We don't even know actually if they were believers or not believers. You say, of course they were believers, Rob. They were sitting in church. As if just sitting in church makes a person a believer. I've said many times to you guys and to the different people that have gone through the life of this church that one of my great frustrations or sadnesses would be that somebody was sitting in church week after week, month after month, but wasn't in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you can do that. We can come into this church here. You can be welcomed warmly. You can think, well, when I go to that club that I go to, nobody even pays attention to me. But here they give me coffee and they give me a cupcake. And they just start hugging me like, what the freak? This is crazy. I love this. You know what I mean? Like, like people just, I'm, I'm coming here every week. And, and you feel affirmed and you feel loved. And, and you think this worship, I don't really understand all they're singing, but it, it is uplifting to hear these songs. And they sing with such passion and that guy that does those talks, I don't know what he's talking about, but he's enthusiastic anyway. And so, like, I quite like them. They come week after week, and they don't allow the Word of God to penetrate and bring them to the place 
of saving faith. You just start attending church. You just become like so many in the world today, nominal in your religion. You begin to belong to a tribe, but you haven't come in saving faith to Jesus Christ. And so, um, and I've had this. I've had men come to me um, and say, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. And I said, but I've seen you in church worshiping, and I've, you've done this, and you've done that. And they said, well, I, I did it for my wife, or I did it for my husband, or for my children, or because that's the way that I was brought up. But they didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul, he says to us, he says, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And friends, we've got to do that. I know I'm in the faith. I hope you know you're in the faith. I have no, I, I, I do not have the, a millisecond, and I, I'm not saying this to to make you feel bad about doubts that you have. I'm just telling you my experience. I do not have a millisecond of doubt that I'm born again and that I belong to Jesus Christ and that, he, that my name is written in His book and that when I die and go from this earth, I will be with Him for all eternity. I, I absolutely and certainly know that if you don't, come and speak to me after the meeting because the Bible makes it clear that we can have that assurance of our salvation as we move forward. And so were Ananias and Sapphira saved? Maybe they were. If they were, they, they were maybe along the lines of Simon. I referred to him last week, Simon the magician, who uh, he gets saved. The Bible says he believes, but then it says this, but he was full of bitterness and captive to sin. You think like, what kind of Christian is this? Full of bitterness and captive to sin. In Acts 19, it says of, of um, the, the believers in Ephesus, it says, many of those who believed, Many of those who believe. Now, when you believe, that's how you come into salvation. Am I right? That's what it takes to be saved is to believe. Not by your works, not even by your changed life, but by your faith in Jesus Christ. But it says this. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed the evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And so sometimes our salvation is like if this is the line of salvation, there's a journey that brings us up to the line. There's revelation and understanding that comes that brings us to the point where we believe and put our faith in Jesus Christ. But there's also a continuing journey where things that we should have dropped down at the cross, we're still carrying with us that need to be dealt with. And so I've seen people that have come to faith and the day they give their life to Christ, like uh, addictions are broken, smoking, alcohol. There were, um, I know of one man in particular I'm thinking of, he was, a, he was an alcoholic and a chain smoker. The day he met Jesus from that day onwards, never drank again, never smoked again. It was broken of him completely. Some of you will have the experience of having come to Christ smoking and will still continue to smoke and it takes time for God to break that off of you or, or drinking or whatever it is. I know for me, one of the things that I brought to the cross when I came was my temper, my inability to control myself when I when I like get out of control and, 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 and sin in my anger, and it, it wasn't like I came to Jesus and that was just miraculously lifted off of me. It does for some people. It wasn't for me, and it became a journey of dealing with it. And maybe Ananias and Sapphira had things that were, there were, there were strongholds in their life that hadn't been dealt with, and pride or fear of man or the love of man or whatever that was was going on in their lives. But we do know this, and this is the warning to us, they did not fear God. They treated God as if it were nothing. To, to be able to say this, this is everything that we, um, we sold the land and everything. I made a fuss about it. This is everything that we got for the land. And now we're putting it at the apostles' feet like this, knowing that you're lying. See, the Holy Spirit is not somebody that 
um, that stays at home when you go out and then you come back and say, I did this when you did something else. No, no. The Holy Spirit is with you at all times. He dwells inside of us. He knows our very, the very attitudes of our heart. He knows every feeling that we have. And so how can you think you can lie to the Holy Spirit? How can you have such disregard and, and, and not care about um, what He thinks and what He's saying? And so I, I think that Ananias and Sapphira were believers. I think they were believers who allowed areas of their lives to be undealt with. That when, the, when the Spirit came to bring conviction about areas, and there would have been moments for them, where they were talking about this and going, well, let's sell the land and we'll tell them that we've given them everything, but we'll keep some aside for whatever the reasons were that they had. Now, the Holy Spirit would have said, don't do that. They would have felt this conviction come upon them and they would have just shut that voice up and quietened down like that. Friends, you, you must never quieten the voice of conviction that the Holy Spirit brings into your life. See, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and He puts His finger on an area in your life like this, so gently, so gently. He says, okay, now I want to deal with this. He doesn't deal with everything all at once. He comes and he deals and says, now I'm dealing with this thing. And when we allow him to, his fingers on us, like, so we, okay, Holy Spirit, I surrender. I'm opening myself in this area for you to come do your work. Then he can come and bring about a victory in that area and bring us from a place where we're living in defeat in that area to where we live in victory. But sometimes we slap away the hand of the Holy Spirit like this. We knock his fingers away. We ignore him. We shut his voice out. We lie to him. And, uh, and when that happens, that area can become a hardness in our hearts, and it becomes stronger and stronger in our lives, so eventually the, we, we can't get free of that area. And now we become captive in that area of our life to, to that sin or that um, deception. And so they became the objects of divine judgment. You say, well, whoa, hold on, Rob. Now let's talk about this. Be- believers can't come under the judgment of God. And again, I think we take these words and we make them so narrow, hey, as if Judgment means the final judgment of God upon our lives. But judgment just means making a, judging, making a judgment about that situation. And then God will decide based on that what He wants to do in our lives at any particular point in time. But there, there are some big questions. For example, how is it that they could have fallen victim to, to divine judgment when the penalty for our sin has already been paid by Christ? Aren't all believers exempt from God's judgment? And doesn't the Bible speak of fear being driven out by God's love? So why does fear seize the church when God acts in this moment? The fear of God for believers is not the fear of punishment. Um, in 1 John, I need these back again. In 1 John 4, 17 and 18, it says this. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. On what day? The day of judgment. We have confidence in the day of judgment. That's a wonderful thing for us to have. Because in this world, we are like Him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, which is the sacrifice of Christ, drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so what John is saying to us is because we've been born again, we don't have to fear punishment. And I don't. And I'm so grateful that I don't. I'm so grateful that I can look forward to the day when I'll stand before Jesus one day. I don't have to fear death thinking like, how am I going to explain this or that way? I I thank you that the punishment that I deserved, Christ bore upon the cross. And it's done and it's paid for. God's not going to punish me when he's already punished his son for that sin. It's been paid for. And I'm profoundly grateful to God for that. Um, But those that are outside of the church, those that are not believers should live with fear. One of the great, greatest, most renowned preachers was one by Jonathan Edwards called um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
and um, he's preaching this to a church in, I think it was in New England in the 1800s or something like that. Um, it was a time when the church was, was just, the, the passion for God had been lost. There was just a great, um, there were nominal believers everywhere. So everybody was a Christian, in inverted commas, because it was a Christian nation, in inverted commas. But actually, most people were not followers of Christ. They were not living in the way um, uh, that exemplified following Christ. And so there was this death, deadness in the church. And so Jonathan Edwards comes and he preaches this message. And it's, it has this profound impact upon those that are hearing it. And one of the lines he says that I can't remember exactly how he says it. It was ages ago I read it. But he speaks about how there's like this thin membrane, he says, that you're sitting upon right now. And beneath it are the very flames of hell that wait to punish those that reject Christ. And in any moment, it, there's, there's, this membrane could split and you will fall into those flames and you cannot be saved of that. And he says, it's only the grace of God and His mercy that keeps that membrane where it is right now. And the, the people were like wanting to, they were like crying out. They were, they were in agony as he was preaching, like, what must we do to be saved kind of thing. And he wouldn't let them come up yet because he wanted, he said, the, the, I want the full conviction of God to come up upon you before you respond to what is being said. And if those that are the, outside the church, they live upon their membrane, friends. That's why it's so important that we preach this gospel message. That's why Christ came so that this season of grace we on this that when this membrane finally breaks, when they fall through into that pit and are lost for eternity, that that would not happen, that we rescue them from that and bring them to the place of sonship, forgiveness and sonship with Christ. For us, we can be certain that we'll not fall through that. We have the, for us, we have a rock beneath our feet. We belong to Christ. We know what's coming. But we will also one day face a judgment before the Lord, even us as believers. The Bible speaks about the fact that we will give an account for every Good and evil or, um, or bad thing we've done. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's different from those that are being judged for their faith. And each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. God, um, God will do what he said he will do and our works will be tested. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 and 15 speaks of a fire that will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If, if it is burnt up, he will suffer loss, for he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. And so in my mind, it's like Ananias and Sapphira, they, they, they get to heaven like the flames of hell are burning like this, and they, they just get into heaven. I don't want to arrive like that, like putting out flames on my butt like this as my blessed assurance has been set alight. It's like, that's what it says. You will be one as, as one escaping the flames, but, but your works will be destroyed. Everything that, you, that, you, that your life has meant is, is crumbled before you. There's nothing left there. You arrive with nothing. And they will never hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, because they were not good and faithful servants. I want to arrive in heaven without any smell of smoke around me. I want to arrive with my with what I've given my life to, proven to be silver, gold, and precious stones, and I want to be able to cast those things at the feet of Jesus. In Revelation, it speaks about the elders who cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus in worship. I don't want to come in worship in eternity with empty hands. I want to come to be able to pour out what I have before Christ. There's a friend of ours by the name of Ray Oliver, and he said this once in a preach, and it, it struck me when he said it. And I hope it strikes you and stays with you as it has stayed with me for year after year after year. That this life is the only opportunity we have to sacrifice 
for Jesus. You see, when you get to heaven one day, you're not going to have a limit of time that you can say, well, I'm going to give some time to Jesus. You've got eternity. You won't have a limit of resources that you can sow sacrificially from what you do have into the kingdom of God. You won't have to be able to sacrifice your, your, um, your, your dreams. You won't be able to sacrifice anything. This life is the only life we can sacrifice for Jesus Christ. When it's past, that opportunity is gone. We'll actually look back. I think people say there's no regret in heaven but in the Bible, it says that actually some people are weeping in heaven. I do believe there's a time in this judgment seat where there will be regret as we think, that as we stand before that judgment seat, if only I had. Why did I not? Why could I, did I not give at that moment? How precious you are, Lord Jesus. I wish I'd given everything. Why did I give so little? I'm not talking about money, friends. I'm talking about our lives. Why did I not walk with faith? Why did I not walk with compassion? Why did I not walk with sold out for you? Why did I live this mediocre, compromised life before you instead of what you called me to? Why didn't I get up and pray? Why didn't I go do this or go do that? Because you are so beautiful. You are worth it all. And now I can never do it for you again. And heaven isn't, friends, about sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. I, I, you know, when I was, I was a kid, you know, the imagery comes up all the time. That for me is a picture of hell. Seriously, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp for all eternity, I'd, I'd eventually stab myself with that harp thing, whatever. You play a harp, whatever. I'd, I'd find some way to kill myself in eternity if I was, if that was. No, heaven's something extraordinary. I think of, like, life is a great adventure. It pales in comparison to what heaven's going to be like. The Bible speaks about us ruling over cities, judging angels. It speaks about us um, um, exercising authority, um, and, we, and we will worship I've actually got my agenda set up for the first 10,000 years of heaven already. I do some planning. I, I, I share it with you guys sometime, but it's, I'm quite excited about being there. Seriously, I've got, I think we're going to fly in heaven, and I, I, mean, I want to worship God and fly while I'm worshiping. I, seriously, I think that'll be able to happen. I want to open these, I want to go through the open doors into the city. I want to I go and embrace my heavenly Father. I want to, after 10,000 years of worshiping Him and, and just glorying in His, His infinite beauty, I'm going to go out and explore some of the, the, the universes that God has created for us to be a part of. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. And God has rewards for us in that life to come. And some people say, well, I don't care about my rewards. I'm, I'm too holy and pure. I actually hope I end up with nothing. But then you don't care about what Jesus cares about. In Hebrews 11, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And we want to please Him. And we, we have faith if we believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. And again and again, Paul speaks about the crowns that we receive as, as believers as we fulfill our responsibilities. Jesus speaks in the book of Revelation about those that overcome, I'll give you this. And if you overcome, I'll give you this. And if you overcome, I'll give you this. But if you don't overcome, you don't get this. And if you don't overcome, you don't get this. And so it matters how we live our life today. And part of the fear of God is understanding that this life, doesn't matter. The things around us that we think are important, like how fancy our clothes are, how much money we've got in our bank account, what other people think about us, those things are not important. Because when we, when we love those things, we end up fearing those things being taken from us. Because if we love the praise of man, we fear the loss of the praise of man. If we love money, we fear the loss of money. So when markets are moving around and things are going crazy, we end up worrying about those things instead of fearing Him and what He's promised to give to us. The fear of God is a healthy fear. It's good fear. It's like fearing fire. You don't put your hand in a fire and let it burn. You don't. I like, I've, I've never been tempted to um, smoke dope or 
you know, um, heroin. I don't know what you even do with heroin. That's how little I know about that stuff. You may have gone through that journey. Like, I would even go close to it. The thought, I've seen the lives of people that have been affected by it. I'm so terrified that, like, maybe I will, because I've got that kind of personality. I would get addicted to it, and I would end up definitely down that road. So I'm not even going to go, like, if there's a line, then I'm 100 meters back from the line. I don't even want to go near that thing. It's a healthy fear of that. If you are the kind of person that's dabbling around in that area, that's, you, you don't have a healthy fear. You need to get a healthy fear. We had a, a guy we had a men's camp here a few years ago out in the desert, and uh, the guy's name is Leonard. And Leonard, it was cold out in the desert. You can hardly believe it this time of year, but it was freezing out there. And so he was in his tent, and he put his little, he had like an um, oil burner that they were use, they'd used to bry. And he put it in his tent, and he lit it so that he could have this oil burner burning through the night and keeping him warm. And he was warm, but apparently it lets off poisonous fumes, and he nearly died. We actually had to rush him to hospital, and he had to get resuscitated from that. You see, he didn't have a healthy fear of that stove. Everybody else on the camp had a healthy fear of fire and all that sort of stuff. Like, even if I was cold, I'm not going to light that thing in my tent. He didn't have a healthy fear. And the fear of God is a healthy fear that keeps us from living a life that's, that's pointless and dissipated. And so what, what it's saying essentially is that God wants us to take His church seriously. Jesus takes His church seriously. When the Holy Spirit struck down Ananias and Sapphira, He was saying to this church as they were going through revival, take my church seriously. This is my bride. When, uh, when one day when we are um, standing before God as the, the, the bride of Christ, all of us together, um, we, we will be this beautiful bride that gets, the Bible actually says we'll become married to Jesus and we'll become His wife, this this community of people. Um, and God, God gives us the, his, the fear of Him as a gift. He gives us a gift. If you, are, if you are toying around and messing with God, like um, you're messing around with a floozy on the side, as if God was some distraction in your life, you better stop doing that because God takes His bride seriously and you are a part of that bride. Some people say there shouldn't be any fear in the relationship with God. Um, even though this, the Bible speaks quite clearly that there should be. Some people say there shouldn't be fear in the relationship between a parent and their child. I can understand what they're saying, but I want to say I don't believe that's true. I think there is a healthy fear in the relationship between a parent and their child. When I, um, when I think about my own children, take Matthew, for example. Matthew's 21 now. It's be less of an issue for him now. But um, imagine, imagine Matthew met a girl the one day, and she said to him, hey, Matt, she's hot, smoking hot girl. Okay, so understand, there's a bit of dis- it's not easy for him right now to be able to understand what's going. She says to him, Matt, if you get out in the middle of the night, meet me at 2 o'clock in the morning with a car, we can go for a ride together, and who knows what could happen. Now, I hope Matthew thinks to himself, number one, yeah, I love my dad, and my dad's such a good guy, and he does so much for me, and um, so I'm not going to steal the car at night and go out because because, um, I love my dad. I hope if that doesn't work, that he thinks to himself, well, this is not a right thing to do. It's it's, um, it's illegal, and if I get caught by the cops, there'll be trouble. But if none of those things happen, if his love for me and his gratitude to me doesn't constrain his behavior, I hope his fear of me constrains it. So if Matt climbs out of that window like this and goes into the garden and opens the gate and closes it and climbs into my car, beep, beep, with the keys like this, and he presses that start button like this, and as he's thinking about this smoking hot babe that he's about to go pick up, he thinks to himself, 
if my dad, if, if anything happens, my dad is going to kill me. And he's right. I would, I would kill him. I would take him to the near, nearness of the end of his life and then resuscitate him and kill him a little bit more and then resuscitate him again and then him, let him live. And um, my point, there would, be, there would be consequences for the decision that he makes. And so then he thinks about it, turns the car off, gets out the car, comes back into his bed again, and the fear of his dad has saved him from that sin operating in his life. I've written here, we are the safest consequence our children's sinfulness will ever reap. We are the safest consequence our children's sinfulness will ever reap. When the child speaks insolently to me and I discipline him for that, that's the safest consequence they could ever have. If they were to speak insolently to God, it would be something completely different. And I protect my children from bad decisions and teach them so they grow up to be good citizens and good sons and daughters of God. And the Father does the same for us. And Hebrews 12 says that, that um, the Father disciplines those He loves, not punishes, friends. Like, again, words can be a bit confusing. If, if by punishment you understand, like, you've done this and I just want to hurt you as a consequence. Like, like, I don't care about what effect this has upon your behavior in the future. I'm just going to hurt you. That's like retribution or revenge. So somebody does something to me in, in my worst possible moments. I would think to myself, I just want to hurt them for the thing they've done to me. I don't want justice. I want to hurt them. I want to, that's, that's what punishment is like. It's, but God comes to discipline us so that we, will, that we will reap something from it. So Hebrews 12 says that He disciplines us for our good, and all discipline seems painful at the time, but produces a harvest of righteousness. And the harvest of righteousness in our life is peace and joy. And so the same way I discipline my kids, not because I, I love my car more than I love my son, or I love my reputation more than I love my son. I love my son, and that's why I put those boundaries in place. And I will discipline him to make sure those boundaries are enforced. And the Father will do the same thing to us. And friends, I, there's a warning here. If you, are, if you are going sneaking out at night with the car to go meet your uh, whatever, if whatever that parallel is in your life, if it's in your the way that you handle your finances, the way that you handle your relationships, holding on to unforgiveness. I met with a couple this week that um, the husband did something terrible. The wife has um, said she had forgiven him, but now the, the marriage a year later is in absolute turmoil and it's a mess. And I said to her, you've got to forgive your husband. She said, but it's so hard. I said, you, you're walking in sin by continuing to hold on to this thing. And it seems like a hard thing to say, but God wants to rescue her from the consequences of unforgiveness. And so this morning, God is here in the midst of us. He's, he's, he's saying two things. Do not fear that which is out there. Friends, you hear about the economic collapse and the recession that maybe is coming. We hear about 44 million people being sh short of food. I was chatting with the guys in Sri Lanka the other day. It's an absolute mess there. The, the price of fuel is rocketing up all over the place. Your retirement plans may look like a dog's breakfast at the moment. There's war happening up in, in Europe that could spread even further. Who knows where it can go? There's all sorts of things going on. Don't fear that. Fear the Lord. He is the one who is holy, and He will be our sanctuary. And so in the end of the day, our fear of God is our sanctuary. But if you are living lives that are treating God with disregard, you end up outside of the sanctuary. And so I, I come to you today as a father, and I say to you as I would say to my own children, take it seriously. Take your relationship with God seriously. 
take your life seriously, the decisions you are making. This is not a game. I literally believe that I saw somebody um, struck down by the Lord when they were, under, they were under discipline for sin in the life of the church, and they told the church that they were following the discipline, and they were caught sneaking out at night and breaking the terms of the discipline. And uh, suddenly, within a week, that person died. And you say, well, Rob, that doesn't happen. Friends, let the fear of God, that's why this is in the Scripture. It's not, it's not a game. The Holy Spirit doesn't put this in there for no reason. He puts this in here for a reason. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because it leads us back into Him who is the sanctuary. Not because it, it stops us doing the things that we're doing. It stops us in our tracks when we've continued in this way, in this carelessness towards God, in this disregard and this dissipation, that we take Him seriously. So, this is not um, one of those preachers where you kind of leave going, wow. Rob's so cool, told us that Jesus loves us and he wants to bless us. I'm telling you that he is a good father. He's the best of all possible fathers that we celebrate on this Father's Day. And he, he tells us what a good father's like. He says, if I don't discipline you, he says, it's because I'm treating you like an illegitimate child. If I love you, I'm going to discipline. I preached once on drunkenness. I think I've t- in, my, in my life I've preached twice on drunkenness. I preached once. The next week, a man who was in eldership with me got drunk and slept with a prostitute. I preached once on domestic violence. Within weeks of that, a man had killed his own son by beating him. See, it matters what gets preached from the pulpit. When I, when I say this, it's not a game, not to me. Say, Rob, you're getting a little bit intense here. Now, maybe I am. But in the Bible, we read about a man and a woman who fell down dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. I'm so grateful to God for the grace that He has for us. I'm so grateful for the elements. I've, I don't know what you've messed up. I've probably messed up worse than you. And I turn around and I come back to God in repentance. There's nothing that He cannot redeem. There's no message you've made that He cannot come into that He will not forgive. There's nothing that He will not forgive. But you cannot be sitting in the pigsty. You have to get up from the pigsty and come back to your Father. Say, Father, I'm sorry for the way that I've treated you. I don't deserve to be your son. And even while you're saying those words, He will draw you in and put a cloak upon your back and sandals upon your feet and a ring upon your, on your finger. But if you stay in the pigsty, you'll prove that you are not a son and not a daughter. And I bet you, I, I remember there's times when ministry has been hard eh? and Linda, Linda said to me, can we do something else? And, um, and it's been tempting. I thought, I can, I can, I can, do, some, I can do some things. I said, but I'm, I'm actually terrified to step out of the will of God. I, I'm genuinely, like I, I feel like there's a favor on my life. Like there's things that are hard, but so many ways God watches over and cares for me and I know His love. And so to just say, I'm going to make my own decision and step out of the will of God, I'm, I'm actually scared to do that. And the fear of God keeps me in, in, in the place to what He's called me to. And the fear of God should keep you. You don't just make the decisions that you want for your life. You make the decisions that He wants for your life. Be like Barnabas. Be like Barnabas. Sell it all. And I don't mean literally. I mean 
Now, open your hands here and say, God, come in. You have my, my health. You have my life. You have my wife. You have my husband. You have my children. You have my parents. You have my retirement savings. You have my, you have my Bitcoin. You can have all of those now, Lord. You can have um, um, whatever. You're just like, Lord, I give it to you. I fear you. I'm going I'm to walk in you. You will be my sanctuary. 